Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Robert Spencer. And he's publishing a book on December 2021. Title of the book is The Critical Quran, explained from key Islamic commentaries and contemporary historical research. And Mr. Spencer is the director of Jihad Watch and a Shilman Fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center. He is the author of 23 books, including the New York Times bestsellers, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades, and The Truth About Muhammad, and the best-selling The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. His most recent book before this one is titled, Did Muhammad Exist? An Inquiry into Islam's Obscure Origins, and that was July 2021. Uh, Mr. Spencer has also led seminars on Islam and Jihad for the FBI, the United States Central Command, United States Army Command, and General Staff College, and the U.S. Army's Asymmetric Warfare Group, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, JTTF, and the Justice Department's Anti-Terrorism Advisory Council and the U.S. Intelligence Community. He has discussed Jihad, Islam, and Terrorism at a workshop sponsored by the U.S. State Department and the German Foreign Ministry. He is a senior fellow with the Center for Security Policy. And so he has 23 books. Some of the titles, the earliest title that I saw on Amazon is Islam, Islam Unveiled, Disturbing Questions About the World's Fastest Growing Faith, also Inside Islam 2003, um, The Truth About Muhammad, Founder of the World's Most Intolerant Religion 2006, Religion of Peace, Why Christianity Is and Islam Isn't 2007, also, he wrote one with Pamela Geller titled The Post-American Presidency, The Obama Administration's War on America, and The Complete Infidel's Guide to ISIS 2015. And then I said the last one, most recent before this is Did Muhammad Exist? But this is a breakdown of the 114 surahs of the Quran. And again, this title of this book is The Critical Quran, explained from key Islamic commentaries and contemporary historical research by Robert Spencer. So Robert Spencer, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you very much. Very well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not know your background, your extensive background and all your research, can you kind of do an overview of your books and what led you to write the critical Quran? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for well over 20 years now, I have been trying to elucidate the motivating ideology behind jihad terrorism, because I don't know if there is anything else in the world. There may be, but it would be hard to find something about which there is more misinformation and disinformation and outright lies. Uh, right from the beginning, uh, right after 9-11, the uh, airwaves were filled with people saying, uh, what actually the president, uh, George W. Bush, was saying, that Islam is a religion of peace, it has nothing to do with terrorism, and the terrorists do not have anything to do with Islam. Now, unfortunately, I really wish it were not the case, because it's just a lot of trouble. But nonetheless, it is a fact that Islam actually does have doctrines of violence, of warfare against unbelievers that have justified violence and terrorism throughout the 1400-year history of Islam and do so today. And that they were, they were behind, these ideas were behind the 9-11 uh, attacks and other 40,000 other jihad attacks that have taken place around the world since 9-11. So this book now, The Critical Quran, is the culmination of 30 years of research on the Quran and it is an attempt to provide uh, what has been lacking 
to a tremendous degree up to now, and that is an honest translation of the Quran, you find that a lot of translations are misleading, some of them not even intentionally misleading. But for example, most all translations of uh, the Quran into English say, strive hard in the way of Allah. And this is something that's repeated several times in the Quran. It sounds like it's telling you to pray more and be nicer to people and so on. Strive hard in the way of Allah. But actually that strive in Arabic is jihada, which is a verbal form of the noun jihad. And when a Muslim reads the Quran in accord with the traditional and mainstream Islamic understanding, it means strive hard in the way of Allah means wage jihad, take up arms, fight in a hot war against people who do not believe in Islam. And so this translation says wage jihad in the way of Allah and explains in the commentary how mainstream Islamic scholars have understood the passages. There are many other cases, for example, chapter 4, verse 34. This, uh, this Quran says, good women are obedient, and as for those that are not, give them a warning, send them to separate beds, and beat them. Whereas if you read a lot of other translations, they say, beat them lightly. But the Arabic doesn't say lightly, it just says beat them, and that kind of thing. So this is the first honest translation of the Quran. Gotcha. Plus, who, sorry to interrupt, but who did the translation for this um, version? Yes, I did. You did? Okay, great. So you actually translated from the original Arabic. I translated oh, it primarily actually comparing the earlier English translations with the Arabic and trying to come up with something that was clearer and more uh, accessible to English-speaking audiences. A lot of Qurans also in English, they actually deliberately, it seems to me, obscure the text. For example, two of the major uh, translations of, it, of the Quran into English are, uh, one was written by an, an English convert to Islam named Muhammad Marmaduke Pickthall, and the other uh, a, a native-born Muslim named Abdullah Yusuf Ali. And they both use the language of the King James Bible with these and thous and this and that. You know, people don't talk that way anymore. The King James Bible was written in 1611. People don't, as, as a matter of fact, even Christians, for the most part, don't use it today. And so those translations, you can read them and not really have any idea what the heck is going on. And so this one is written in the English of the modern day and tries to be clear where others try to obscure. Right. And you actually uh, extensively footnote, too, as well in this book. So it's very scholarly going through those surahs. And you do the first nine surahs are really the most important uh, as far as theologically for the foundations of the religion of Islam, correct? Yes, that's right. Uh, and so that's where you'll find the uh, actually most of the Quran is in the first nine surahs and the most important doctrines are uh, all embodied in those particular passages. Uh, so it's important to note that the Quran is not written chronologically. It's arranged kind of oddly, um, generally from the longest chapter to the shortest, although that not, that's not strictly adhered to. And so uh, you find up at the beginning these long chapters, and the long chapters are the meatiest in terms of what Islam is all about. Really, the major aspects of Islamic theology are all in those nine chapters. Right, so that's it, and you and there's like some the the common ex explanation in Islam is these were delivered by angels, perfectly delivered to uh, Muhammad, 
but there's some factual evidence that would dispute that that statement. Is that correct? Oh, well, yeah. Uh, the standard Islamic story, the canonical Islamic story, is that the angel Gabriel appeared to Muhammad over a period of 23 years and gave piecemeal chapters of the Quran. And then later they remember, actually at the time that he would deliver them, after he would come out of these trances where he was talking to Gabriel, then the Muslims would write down the material that he had, uh, uh, he would recite or they would memorize it. And then later, after his death, 20 years after his death, according to Islamic tradition, it was all collected together into the Quran. Now, there are many problems with this story. One is that the, the canonical account is that the Quran was collected together, as I say, 20 years after Muhammad's death. This is the year 653, actually 21 years after Muhammad is supposed to have died in 632. And the uh, copies distributed to all the Islamic provinces. Now, the problem with that, among many, one problem with that is that there's no mention of the Quran at that time, even though the Arab empire was quite vast by 653 and to distribute this book to all the provinces coming from the center, from the caliph, the successor of Muhammad would give it particular importance. Nobody at the time mentions it. There's no contemporary mention of the Quran at all in the 650s. Only in the 690s do we start to hear it quoted which suggests that actually it's much more likely that it was put together in the 690s, and there is evidence for that, and then uh, retrojected back into the 650s to give it an air of authenticity. This is uh, supported, for example, by a tradition attributed to the time of uh, Abdul Malik, the caliph, the leader of the Muslims from 685 to 705. And he says a very strange thing, and this is, once again, this is Islamic tradition. He says, I am afraid I'm going to die during Ramadan, the holy month, because I was born during Ramadan, I became caliph during Ramadan, and I collected the Quran during Ramadan. Now, now why on earth would anybody invent such a tradition if the Quran had already been collected 40 years before? And also, uh, I know I'm going on, but in brief... No, please continue. Please, this is great. In the critical Quran, I also show that there are many, many signs of editing, of emendation, of alteration in the text that have been glossed over for the most part by Western scholars who just take for granted that it's all the work of one man. It's very clearly, if you look at it closely, a book written by committee. Wow, I mean, it's really incredible because that is the real foundation of the religion. It's going against it if it's been changed. And also my understanding is that the version of Arabic was much different and rudimentary and there's different you say there's seven different variants Can you talk about some of the linguistic problems with it being received right by Muhammad? Yeah, absolutely uh, For one thing if you are familiar with the Arabic alphabet or even if you're not very briefly 22 letters and 16 of them are identical to other letters and the only thing that distinguishes them in form is the dots the diacritical marks that go above or below the letter so in other words you have like a kind of a slash and just by itself it's an r and then you put a dot over it it's a z or am i do i have that backwards anyway, it doesn't matter the thing is that the uh original quran manuscripts they only uh have the letters none of the diacritical marks so that means that there's a great deal of slippage in terms of possibilities for what the words could be 
even in the basic Arabic. For example, in uh, here, I have it right here, the, uh, the critical Quran. Uh, just got the advanced copies the other day. And if you go to, I know uh, I, I'm the only one who has it in the world at this point, so actually I shouldn't say if you can go to. But uh, it says, this book, there is no doubt in it. This is chapter 2, verse 2, right at the beginning of the Quran. And uh, there is no doubt in it is la raiba fihi. Now, the R and the Z, as I noted, are the same except for the diacritical marks. And so are the B and the T. So there was a, there's a story, and once again, this is Islamic tradition, of a young man who's reading it, and he says, la zaita fihi, there is no oil in it. And uh, it, it could mean that because you can't tell. The diacritical marks are not in the original manuscript. And some scholars, that's just a little joke, you know, about oil in the book. But the uh, reality is that scholars have gone through and examined the substratum of the Quran, stripping away, that is, the diacritical marks and just looking at the letters themselves, trying to think of what else it could mean. And they've been able to come to clarity about a lot of passages that are completely strange and garbled and unclear in the Arabic. And some posit that actually there's an Aramaic substratum from which a lot of the Quran was taken, which would make sense that it was an Aramaic Christian text that was taken over by the composers of the Quran, the compilers of the Quran, and made into this new Arabic text with a completely different meaning by shifting the diacritical marks. marks. Wow, that's incredible. And we know that Muhammad was illiterate too, right? So he couldn't have been a person who wrote it down, right? Yeah, the Quran says that the, the prophet, actually the Quran, I should note, only mentions the name Muhammad four times. And uh, many, many other times there are mentions of the messenger of Allah or the prophet. But that could be somebody else. That could have been, or I should say, that could have originally referred to somebody else and, have, and, and then have been incorporated into the Quranic text. But, uh, yeah, it says that he's Omein, which is illiterate, but also could mean foreign in terms of particular being Persian. And that may actually indicate that uh, he had to answer claims of being Persian, not Muhammad himself necessarily. But the uh, let me explain, let me back up a bit. The uh, Quran is supposed to have all been written in southwestern Arabia, around Mecca and Medina. But the Arabic dialect that is used actually comes from farther north, oh, in the Navajo area, around Petra and southern Jordan. And... The uh, compilers of the Hadith, the reports about Muhammad's words and deeds, are mostly Persians. And so it may be that they invented statements of Muhammad denying that he's Persian because they're trying to cast this thing into an Arabic context. And so they have to fend off people who note, well, you know, you're a bunch of Persians, and this whole thing is a Persian enterprise, when uh, actually... That does seem to be the case, that it all developed not in Arabia, but in Iraq, in uh, Syria, in areas that were uh, part of the greater Persian cultural purview at the time. Right. That's incredible. I mean, it really is. And you mentioned a couple names that I hadn't heard before. One is the Caliph Uthman and also John of Damascus. You mentioned John of Damascus often as a commentator on the early uh, Quran. Can you talk about his importance? Yeah, you know, I sure can. But actually, uh, <laughs> I just saw the comment. Uh, actually, 
the uh, I, I realized that you asked me about the seven dialects, and I should mention that there are a lot of variations in the Quranic text that I note in this book, many of which I note. There, there are many more. Uh, but the reality is that many Islamic apologists in the West have insisted for decades that there is absolutely no variation, that the Quranic text is absolutely the same in every manuscript. Every manuscript for 1,400 years is exactly the same as every other. And this is used as a polemical point against the Christians when the Christians show that there are a lot of different manuscripts of the Bible and sometimes variant readings of various passages and so on, then the Muslims say, well, see, Allah miraculously preserved our book and not yours, and that's why there's no variance. But actually, there are plenty. And these have even been attempted to be explained away in Islamic tradition by these hadith that date from the ninth century in which Muhammad is supposed to have received the Quran in seven different Arabic dialects. And even today, there's tremendous confusion about this. And you can find Muslims saying, oh, that just means different ways to pronounce it. But others admitting that there are actual variations in the text and so on and saying they're all preserved by Allah and it's all perfect anyway. But it's harder and harder to sustain this argument because you have all these variants. Well, if something is perfect, it should be unitary. And it is quite clearly isn't. So that's an apologetic attempt on the part of very early Islamic scholars to explain away these variants by saying that Muhammad receives the Quran in seven dialects. And then it's passed on in all these different traditions by different reciters. And so it has all these different forms. But that doesn't make sense with the idea of it all being dictated by Allah in a perfect form. Uh, so anyway, John of Damascus is actually the first. Uh, Uthman actually comes before John of Damascus. Uthman is the caliph of the Muslims. Caliph means successor. And he's the leader of the Islamic community after Umar and Abu Bakr. Umar, uh, Abu Bakr was the first successor of Muhammad, the first caliph, and then was followed by Umar and then Uthman from around 644 to 656. And he's the one who, as I noted, collected, according to tradition, collected the Quran. But it's a yawning absence. There is no contemporary evidence that he did this. There's not even any contemporary evidence that there was an Uthman. Uh, but in any case, that's the standard Islamic story. In uh, the, the threat to the standard Islamic story comes in large part from John of Damascus. John of Damascus, writing around the year 730, now, this is 98 years after Muhammad is supposed to have died, according to Islamic tradition. He's the first Christian writer to write about Islam as such. And even John of Damascus, he's, he's explaining that he's very familiar with Islam. And he says, I've read all your books. I've read the Quran. And I've read Surat al-Baqarah. Now, Surat al-Baqarah is chapter 2 of the Quran. And yet, one of Damascus, by saying that, you see, William, he obviously gives the impression that it's a separate book. Right. And it may well have been a separate book. I mean, after all, why on earth would anybody refer to it in that way unless it were? You don't go around saying, you know, I read Huckleberry Finn and I read chapter eight of Huckleberry Finn. That would have been taken for granted if you actually read Huckleberry Finn. So it's the same thing with the Quran here. If John of Damascus read it and Surat al-Baqarah was in it, then he didn't have to specify that. But if Surat al-Baqarah was not in it, then that indicates that the Quran was not collected at the time of Uthman and was not even finished being collected at the time of John of Damascus, 50, 60 years after Uthman. Right. So, I mean, it goes to the central, you know, this is a divine origin document 
when it, there's a real questions there. A lot of questions that uh, haven't really been concluded. If you look at all of those, you know, commentators and stuff like that, this document may not have been totally compiled. And I think you write in your book, it's not the way that it's laid out isn't uh, a pure straight narrative, right? Or uh, yeah, sure. can you talk it's about a that? Difficult book to read, as a matter of fact. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the Critical Quran because it is such a hard book to read, and yet it's so important for geopolitics. And a lot of people think, oh, that's all over. The war on terror is history, and you know, you, this is a thing of the past. But actually, the jihadis believe they're fighting a 1,400-year war, and they don't believe it's over. And we're going to be hearing from them again. Uh, and the Quran is what motivates them. But you pick up the Quran and read it. It's like talking to two people that you don't know. Or they're talking to each other and you walk up and start listening and they're referring to things you weren't involved in and you would have no idea what they're talking about the quran reading the quran is like that it's very little context very little explanations of what is going on so you 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 have to go to the commentaries to elucidate in many cases what is being referred to in the quran. and that's the hadith right you mentioned the hadith those are the commentaries sir well, Commentary is actually, strictly speaking, the Hadith are reports. That's what the word means, reports. And they're reports of Muhammad's words and deeds. And they're authoritative for Islamic law if they're considered authentic. Uh, then the commentaries are the tafsir. The tafsir are uh, exactly that, commentaries on the Quranic text. But in the Hadith, there's a lot of tafsir, so there's a lot of overlap. And the Hadith often explain also the azbab al-nazul, which is the circumstances of the revelation. So you have this weird elliptical story that doesn't make any sense in the Quran. And then the Azbab al-Nazul, the circumstances of the revelation, is a story that explains what it was revealed and what it means. And so a lot of that, though, see, the Hadith is all written in the ninth century. And that's 200 years after Muhammad. And so it's, it's very possible. I think, actually, it's very likely that a lot of these Azbab al-Nazul stories about how these Quranic passages were revealed were actually made up in order to explain them. And we're not actually, the. it's not that the, the, the Quran passage originated from the incident recounted in the story, but the story was invented in order to explain an obscure and elliptical Quran passage. Right. And yeah, there's a lot of interesting things. There's, I mean, there, in one of the central themes that's different from Christianity is really the violent be at them. Even me reading through your Quran, uh, you know, I noticed things that really aren't even public where they, he's talking about how the monks and the rabbis take money and it's not for the use of Allah. So it's very financially centered his, whatever those statements and wherever they came from. Can you talk about this kind of uh, adversarial sensibility that's in the Quran? Very much so, yeah. There, it seems that Islam developed uh, out of an, uh, a creedally vague Arabic monotheism that considered itself to have linkage with Judaism and Christianity. And the uh, Arab empire, the people in the Arab empire who put the Quran together and developed Islam, starting in the last part of the 7th century, the beginning of the 8th century, and really picking up steam in the 9th century, they considered the religion that they were constructing, or they tried to sell the religion that they were constructing as being the true embodiment of Judaism and Christianity. And so they went to the Jews and Christians, and they depict Muhammad as going to the Jews and Christians and telling them that he's their new prophet. And they reject him 
out of a profit motive. That is, they're, they're the money-hungry, money-grubbing ones. And the uh, there's actually a story in the Hadith of a uh, delegation of Christians that goes to see Muhammad. And on the way, the leader of the delegation tells the other people, you know, we know this guy's the prophet, but we can't admit it. We have to fight him every step of the way because the Byzantine Empire gives us money and they won't, they won't give us money if we say that he's a prophet. So, see, they cast the Jews and Christians as being in bad faith and being rebels against Allah for their own self-aggrandizement. And there, the Islam is the true embodiment of Judaism and Christianity. And from that actually comes the obligation to jihad, because the Muslims on earth are the executors of the wrath of Allah. This is in chapter 9, verse 14 and 15 of the Quran. And consequently, they have the responsibility to wage war against Jews and Christians in order to subjugate them under the rule of Islamic law and to bring them the truth of the religion that they have twisted and distorted. Right, and then they, they were so bold as to say that these Old Testament prophets and Christ were emissaries of Islam. So imputing yeah, this new religion on the past and, and kind of uh, putting a different twist on it in their eyes. Would you agree with that? Yeah, a lot of people think, you know, we, people in the West take for granted. We learned it in ninth grade civics or not social studies or whatever. Uh, you know, Islam is the youngest of the monotheistic Abrahamic religions and so on. Muslims will not say that. They will say Islam is the oldest. It's the original religion. And uh, the Quran in chapter 3, verse 67 says that uh, Muhammad is, I'm, I'm sorry, Abraham, the patriarch, is not a Jew or a Christian. He's a Muslim. And all the prophets are Muslims, and they taught Islam. This is standard Quranic teaching. The Quran spends a lot of time telling stories about Abraham, even more about Moses, and uh, many, many other figures from the Bible are in the Quran. But they're all Muslims. They're all Muslim prophets. And the idea is, is that the Jews and the Christians twisted the teachings of their prophets to create Judaism and Christianity. And those are illegitimate, twisted, hijacked versions of the original Islam that the prophets taught. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, so I think this is a quote 46 from Surah 6 was, and we caused Jesus, son of Mary, to follow in their footsteps, confirming what was before him in the Torah, and we gave him the gospel, which is guidance and light. So pretty yeah, brazen, bold statement. Uh, if I recall correctly, that's chapter 5, verse 46. Okay, maybe I got it wrong. Sorry, maybe I had the number wrong. The, uh, the idea is that Jesus gets a book, the gospel. Yeah, it's 546. Jesus oh, gets a book. No, not at all. It's just, uh, I, I, you know, I've been out here talking about the Quran for all these years, and many, many times people challenge me and say, you don't know what's in the Quran. You never even read it. You're lying about it and so on. And so I'm always very scrupulous to note the exact passages so the people can check up on what I'm saying and see that it's actually true. So uh, uh, pardon me for that. But in no, case, no, no, no. My mistake. My mistake. Any, anyway, what's noteworthy is that it says we gave Jesus the gospel. See, in the Christian scheme of things, the gospel is the account of Jesus's life. And there are four gospels in the New Testament and so on. And in the Quran, the gospel is a book like the Quran that Jesus is given by Allah. And right. it was that book, which of course doesn't exist because it never existed, that supposedly in the Islamic scheme of things, Christians twisted to form the New Testament. 
it's incredible. It's a totally turning the the Judeo-Christian tradition, and, and the, the Islamic view is not that same. I'm sorry if that's going to insult people or people would be upset. It's totally different. And the quote that here's one I don't even know. You will know the surah, but this is the one I was referencing when I was talking earlier. Oh, you who believe, indeed, many of the rabbis and monks devour the wealth of mankind wantonly and bar people from the way of Allah. They who hoard up gold and silver and do not spend it in the way of Allah give news to them of a painful doom. So really kind of... 931. 931. So that, these are very aggressive things based upon kind of... Uh, fine, there's a financial interest or a material wealth kind of element. And I, you also mentioned the jizya is one of the doctrines in there too. Can you explain the jizya that was in the first nine surahs? Yeah, actually, sorry. Uh, 931 is actually, they've taken as lords besides Allah, their rabbis and monks. But yeah, it's just the same kind of negative uh, passage. And the jizya comes right before that. Uh, chapter 9, verse 29 is a uh, fight against those who do not believe in Allah or the last day. And do not forbid what Allah and his messenger have forbidden. And do not follow the religion of truth, even if they are among the people of the book which is the Quran's term for Jews and Christians primarily, until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. So the jizya is a tax that the Jews and Christians in Islamic societies have to pay for the uh, right to live, basically, because otherwise their lives would be forfeit. They would be considered to be kufar harbi infidels at war with Islam. The idea of the jizya is to enforce the, su the submission of the Jews and the Christians to Islam. And I have many, many commentaries and many Islamic scholars quoted in the critical Quran explaining how the jizya is collected in a state of abasement and humiliation for the non-Muslims. They have to, they're sometimes even spat upon or some other way shown that they are to be subdued, to be submissive to the Muslims that the Muslims are in charge, as is the rightful order of things, because as the Quran also says in chapter 3, verse 110, you are the best of people on earth, and the unbelievers are the most vile of created beings, as chapter 98, verse 6 says. Right, and there's one in there, I think one of the surahs is the Sabbath-breaking Jews who were transformed into apes, so there's some kind of strange yeah. But he, yeah. all, these, the oh, sorry, please continue. That's chapter 2, 63, 65. It's also in 559 and 60 and 7166 that the Jews who disobey Allah are transformed into apes and pigs. And you find this even to this day. You'll find jihadis, uh, Hamas terrorists or others saying uh, we're fighting against the, the children of apes and pigs. And uh, this dehumanization comes straight from the Quran. Yeah, it's incredible. And uh, whoever wrote the Quran or Muhammad spends a lot of time trying to prove that he's a prophet. Can you talk about some of those surahs and how he always is really, he's really convincing, convincing other people that he's a messenger or a prophet? Yeah, that's actually the main point of the whole Quran, actually. Uh, you know, I used to go around speaking all over the country uh, and uh, even other parts of the world uh, before all this COVID business. But uh in any case, I would many, many times have a Quran with me and say, open the Quran on any page. People would start to lecture me about how Islam is peace and tolerance. And I'd say, okay, here's the Quran. Take it. Open it to any page, any page at all. And you will find a furious denunciation of unbelievers. Every last page of the Quran has a blistering denunciation of unbelievers for their perversity in rejecting 
the prophethood of Muhammad. Uh, and it's very clear that the compilers of the Quran, if you don't believe, as I do not, the standard view that Muhammad was an actual human being who uh, put all this together himself, the compilers of the Quran were very intent on trying to make Muhammad the center of their new religion and allegiance to him as the hallmark of faith. And this has been the way it has, this has been the way it is in the Islamic world ever since. Um, this is actually kind of strange when you think about it because the fundamental message of the Quran is a very strict monotheism. And yet the exaggerated reverence for Muhammad who we're insistently told is just a human being, but then on the other hand, he can't be depicted, can't be pictured. Uh, he has to be reverently obeyed and, and imitated in every possible detail of his life. It's, it's practically a deification in itself of Muhammad. And uh, this paradox is, well, that's what Islam is all about, that paradox really that and it's still going on to this day. I mean, if you write a cartoon in Europe about Muhammad, uh, oh, yeah. some people have lost their lives. I mean, serious uh, people, the Islamic world is very serious about uh, those we, depictions. Uh, back in 2015, uh, Pamela Geller and I put on the uh, Muhammad Art Exhibit and Cartoon Contest in Garland, Texas, to strike out for the freedom of speech against this kind of violent bullying and intimidation. And a couple of ISIS terrorists came to kill us. Uh, this was the first, actually, the first ISIS attack in, on, on American soil. They were, of course, killed by our security team in the parking lot. So I am still here to tell the tale. Wow. wow. Well, thank God for that. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, it's still, and this is a real serious issue about the veracity and validity of kind of some of these core documents. I think that you have to ask these questions where they come from. And you can see all these stuff. I mean, there's real violence in there. There's one I saw which is kill the idolaters wherever you find them, take them and besiege them and prepare for them every ambush and also all the schemes. So this is different than the Judeo-Christian tradition too, is all the schemes and Allah is the best of schemers. That does not comport with anything in the Old or New Testament at all. So how can, when you put up this, your translation against the Old Testament, there are stark differences like those. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, the Old Testament is more violent. As a matter of fact, I'm debating a fellow in a couple of weeks uh, who is actually going to try to argue that Islam is not any more violent than Christianity. Uh, and I, I know that he, even without having spoken to him yet, I know that a lot of his argument will be based on Old Testament passages that he will press me to say are uh, moral and good because they're divinely inspired and so on. This comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of inspiration in the Jewish and Christian traditions. And a fundamental misunderstanding of the fact that these passages are all descriptive. They are told, various people are told that they need to kill, and that is very problematic. There's no doubt about it, and it has preoccupied Jewish and Christian exegetes for centuries. But it's vastly different from the Quran, which tells in open-ended ways all believers to fight and wage war and kill unbelievers. And so it's, those are not descriptive passages. They are prescriptive passages that prescribe behavior for the believers. There is no call in the Old Testament or the New to imitate Joshua or these other people who are out killing Amalekites or whoever. Uh, and so consequently, these passages just don't have the kind of force that the violent passages in the Quran have. And unfortunately, we see that played out in the fact that there have been 40,000 jihad attacks around the world since 9-11. And 1,400 years of jihad attacks before that, 
whereas there's no comparable violence. Certainly there have been Christians who've been violent, but not in the same kind of thoroughgoing way and not while pointing to their religious doctrines to justify what they're doing. Right. I mean, there's definitely a distinction there. Um, <clears throat> is there anything that you'd like to add? Anything I missed before we wrap up? Where's the best place to get this book, The Critical Quran? Well, you know, Amazon hates me, but I'm still there for now. And they are pretty much the only bookstore left, them and Barnes and Noble. It's still available at those. If you have a brick and mortar bookstore, you should be able to order it there. Any self-respecting bookstore should be happy to do that. Uh, and uh, so you can find the links to Amazon and Barnes and Noble at my website, jihadwatch.org. And do you have a website or a place where social media that you'd like to share? Yeah, uh, besides jihadwatch.org, I'm also on Twitter at jihadwatchrs. There is a jihadwatch Facebook page also, but it is so shadow banned. I'll bet you won't be able to find it. I bet. I bet you could tell stories about you know, for 25 years in this kind of uh, environment. I know some other crit critics, and they've uh, had it rough. I mean, it sounds like you're very fortunate. So I'm really delighted to have you and talk about that subject. Again, the author's name is Robert Spencer. Title of the book, which is being published uh, December 15, 2021, is The Critical Quran, Explained from the Key Islamic Commentaries and Contemporary Historical Research. And we really just covered the first part of it. We only went into like the first 15 series. There's a lot more to the book. And extensive footnoting, too. So you can see uh, where Mr. Spencer is referencing all of uh, some of the statements that are in the Quran. So I highly recommend people check that out. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Pleasure. All right, thank you. Stay there.